Welcome to season 11 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name's Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions, and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Up next is a conversation that I recently had with Michael Anderson. He's the Professor of Creativity and Arts Education at the Sydney School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney and co-director of the CREATE Centre. He is an internationally recognised educational leader in school transformation processes. He has taught, researched and published in education and transformation for over 20 years including 17 books and 55 book chapters and journal articles. It's an absolute pleasure to get to share the conversation that I had with Professor Michael Anderson today. Professor Michael Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me. Where are you phoning in from? Uh, Coming from home in Sydney today on Gadigal Land. Yeah. Lovely. And uh, we live in the inner west, uh, quite close to Sydney Uni, where I work, uh, which is God's own country. You know, I can get on my bike and ride to Bondi and have a swim. Not at the moment, though. Uh, but, yeah, it's a great part of the world. Nice one. And you just mentioned before we hit record that you've just come back from a long break. Was that a um, was that purely uh, relaxing or did you do some work or what did you get up to in your in your five or so weeks off? Oh, look, it was it was a lot of relaxation. Uh, you know, work kind of tends to be part of life anyway. So, you know, I met people and I hung out with people that I know professionally, but uh, mostly it was just kind of uh, doing things like, you know, going for a three-day kayak uh, up near Exmouth in WA, you know, and snorkelling and what a swimming whale sharks, you know, all the tough stuff. So, yeah, it was amazing. Was it just you or did you get to spend some time with family or? Uh... No, my wife and I went. So it was a kind of a good long break. First long service leave I've ever taken, actually. So it was great to have, you know, to be old enough to take long service leave. Um, one, one of the attractions of growing older, one of the few. But, uh, yeah, it was fabulous. It's a fabulous time to get away and just take it easy. Fantastic. And uh, quite possibly the most important uh, question for our conversation, uh, what's your coffee order for when I can finally swing by the Inner West and grab your coffee? Yeah, look, it's going to be a uh, espresso. Lovely. Uh, yeah, I'm um, I'm converted from milky coffees. I used to have milky coffees all the time and I had a health kick and uh, got off them. So I'm, I'm now an espresso freak. It's interesting. I, I'm trying to get off milk. Um, and I'm finding it a little bit difficult. I'm finding black coffee a bit too much, a bit too much first thing in the morning. But is it an acquired taste? Um, it is. It took me months. Yeah, it took me months. But if you have a little bit rather than a bucket, like if you just, you know, have a little bit, it, it tends to tends to be all right on the stomach, I reckon. So, yeah. Fantastic. I'll, uh, I'll I'll let you know how I go. We actually forgot milk yesterday and so we're out. So this morning I had a black coffee. Wow. And, um not feeling too bad. It was a bit of a wake-up call this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask, um, is there a book uh, that you've recently read that's caused you to kind of stop and reconsider a few things? It could be within your sphere of expertise and education, or it could be more broadly. Yeah, look, I'm going to uh, cheat and take two. Um, okay, great. Uh, there, there's John Dewey's uh, My Creed, or it's called Other Things in Other Places, but uh, it's an old book, like 120 years old, and uh, that book really got me to think about transformation in mm. new ways. I mean, the, the irony is it's such an old book, uh, and yet many of the things that John Dewey talked about still haven't come to pass because they seem to be too radical. Uh, and yet, it's a it's a great read, um, uh, and and it's it's just really. Uh, it really sums up some of the things that we have to get right in education, I think, and and answers so many questions that are contemporary. And as I was saying, it's kind of more than, almost 100 or more than 100 years old now. And the second book 
which kind of focuses on my interest in creativity, isn't actually a book at all. It's a play called Arcadia uh, yeah. by a guy, Tom Stoppard, playwright called, called Tom Stoppard. And what I think that play does is shows on shows kind of the extent of creativity, how you can generate creativity on multiple levels. And it's kind of a, a masterwork, I think, of creativity, right. but it also right. demonstrates how you can kind of generate creativity in different ways and uh, through different forms. So it's Amazing. not always content in Arcadia. It's often about the way this play is crafted. But the crafting of creativity is very important to me and something that I think we should be teaching more, as I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later. But certainly uh, that has kind of changed my view about <clears throat> creativity and how, Love that. How critical it is. I mean, I was already a little bit confirmed in that, but it's made me more ardent, I think, about uh, wow. getting that right. Wow, that's wonderful. I'll um, uh, I'll I'll have to check out both of those. I mean, I'm a huge fan of John Dewey, and he's one of those um, obviously thinkers that comes up, especially in my undergraduate. I remember reading a lot of his work and looking at some of his philosophies. And it's interesting that you mentioned that he was radical. Uh, even for a hundred years ago, and still remains so. It just goes to show what has or hasn't changed in the educational space. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering, um, what were you like at school, and did you have a teacher that made a difference in your life? Uh, look, I was a serial underachiever. Same. Same. <laughs> uh, I in primary school wasn't that flash, and you know, I didn't, as they say, bother the scorers. Uh, my high school uh, education was pretty ordinary as well. Uh, you know, my ATAR didn't send, set the world or my matriculation score didn't set the world on fire. Uh, I would have been uh, voted person most or oh, least likely to be an education professor, I think, uh, at school. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, some of, some of my ex-teachers remain shocked that I did a PhD and, you know, uh, ended up kind of doing the job that I'm doing. But I did have a great teacher, actually, uh, an English teacher who kind of, I suppose, turned me on to the joy and the excitement of English literature and drama and creativity uh, and kind of demonstrated, I think, how important kind of embodied enacted learning can be. Mm. I remember he was an English teacher but also a history teacher. I remember him setting up the class classroom with chairs and tables um, uh, in, in the in the shape of um, like like this kind of um, trench warfare. Wow! And we cool. we kind of experienced this thing. It was extraordinary, actually. Uh, and to experience something like that in a classroom and then still have that memory, like that was year ten, so that was you know decades ago but still to have that memory and have that understanding of what uh kind of uh, uh, what trench warfare or, or a very minute understanding of what trench warfare must have been like yeah it was extraordinary and i suppose that that provided me with an excitement about what might be possible in education and what might be possible when kids are uh, turned onto the arts and turned onto creativity etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah, so those were my experiences. Yeah, well, wow, that, that's really interesting, and and I um, I remember I had a teacher called Mrs. Taylor Jones. I went to a school in the middle of nowhere in Balper, and I had the privilege of interviewing her for the podcast. And um, she was my year three primary school teacher, and um, I have no idea what she taught me. I mean, I teach year three at the moment, um, and of course there'd be some maths in there. There'd probably be a bit of uh, a bit of 2D, 3D shapes, a little bit of measurement. And I had no idea what she taught me, but I remembered how I felt when I went into her classroom. Yeah. And I think it's it, it's so important. And everybody that I've spoken to, um, whether they be professors, whether they be uh, practicing teachers or school leaders, have said the same thing, that it's not about the content that's been taught. Uh, it's about the experience and the feeling in the classroom. And how did you... Um, if you agree, how did you feel when you stepped into that classroom? You mentioned like trench warfare and coming alive. What was the space like? Did you feel safe? Did you feel heard? But yeah, what was that like? I think it, there, there's a paradox, <laughs> I think, in this, which is that um, 
on one level, it was very safe, like very safe classroom. That was never an issue. But it was also a provocative space. Love it was provocative because you were asked to do things and engage with things that you weren't asked to right. in other so there was always a sense of danger uh, and I went to a boys' school for high school and that sense of danger is quite exciting, Love I think, to boys. Like it's, it's a, it, it, it felt really engaging. And, I, I mean, I remember uh, that same teacher talking about a Thomas Hardy um, novel, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and kind of reading the opening passage of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which ostensibly is about, uh, landscape and you know all those kinds of things, but actually is deeply sensual. I, I know this is a family podcast, so I won't go yes. into detail. But, but yeah. look, the, the sense of danger in that, and the sense and kind of it, we read it all, and all of us were sitting there, kind of as if we'd just read the most boring thing in the world. And he said, "Don't you guys see what this is?" And of course, when that light goes off in your head, it's a wow, like you know, it's an extraordinary thing. So. I think a sense of pro- safety, certainly, but provocation, uh, engagement with different learning forms, I think all of those things. But I think you're right. It's the Brené Brown kind of idea, I think, which is, you know, they won't remember what you taught them. What, this is paraphrasing Brené Brown. They won't remember what you taught them, but they, they'll remember how they you, you made them feel. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, you know, teaching is so relational. I mean, I'm not telling anything anyone I'm not saying anything anyone doesn't know there, but certainly it's such a deep relational engagement um, that it's it's important that we 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 remember that it is at the heart of everything that we do. It's not test scores, it's not um, you know policy documents. It's the relational things that we do in the classroom every day which matter. Yeah, I think I think that gets lost though sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, we are so busy in the classroom. I. I'm still in class. I I have the privilege of working in a wonderful school, um, but it is hard, isn't it? Because there's so many things that we could be doing. And I always say to my students that my most important job is not actually to teach you anything. My most important job is to make sure that you feel safe and also to uh, for you to feel like you can take risks and learn. And it's almost like they're, all of the other stuff comes secondary, but it's so it's so hard, isn't it? Just to find the space to connect uh, with our kids because schools are, I'm sure you'd agree, schools are crazy places. They're very busy. Oh, so And post-COVID, even worse, I think, yeah. you know, because yeah. teacher shortages, everyone's doing mm. 30% more, all of that. Yeah. yeah. So they, there's all of that going on. But I think the other thing to know about all that is um, that, you know, when we, when I talk to my students, so I, I teach teachers and I talk to them about the moments in, uh, you know, you, you're doing playground duty, which I don't think many teachers love, but, you know, <laughs> you do playground duty. And that moment that you talk to that kid that you haven't been connecting with or you can't connect with about footy on the weekend, you know, the moment that you talk to that kid about you show interest in that kid mm. is as important, potentially more important, I think, than, you know, their fractions. Now, yeah. that's not to say their fractions don't matter. Of course they matter. But actually engaging yeah. kids in learning is the first step to getting them to understand fractions and having them know that you care about them and their life yeah. is crucial. I think that's so important. And I, I remember very early on in my career, I was rushing and I needed to get photocopying done and go to the toilet and grab a cup of tea and all that kind of stuff. And I was walking, running across the cl- across the, uh, the playground and needed to get something done. And I heard this voice behind me and it was Mr Green can I show you something and I said no not now I'm in the middle of something and so mm. I got another probably 10 steps across the playground and I just stopped and I turned around and I looked at this little girl and she was particularly disengaged in class and was having a number of challenges and she had a picture that she drew of me helping her with her reading and a mm. bit of context around this little girl was that her family had recently separated there was a lot of violence and a lot of challenges at home and I thought if I miss this, this could be the most important conversation I have all day. And so it just, and I've still got that little picture that she drew. And I I share that quite regularly with my team and say, we need to walk with our heads held high. We need to make eye contact with our students. And there is nothing more important than making those connections. I mean, you can't do it with every single student, but you can probably do it with five students a day. And over the year, that makes a big difference. And yeah, I think it's really important. Um, 
Just a quick question. So why on earth or how on earth did you go from sort of, in your words, not mine, an underachiever uh, to a professor? And and why did you decide to go back into schools considering um, respectfully that you didn't have the greatest experience, especially in primary school? Why bother? Well, I, okay, there's, there's probably many answers to that question. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with the one that makes sense to me and my and where I've ended up. I suppose uh, I started I started doing a psychology degree um, and thinking, oh, maybe I'll end up in counselling psychology. And it occurred to me that sitting in a room, listening to people's problems, uh, <laughs> probably wasn't my skill set. No. Uh, <laughs> and it, it dawned on me that teaching uh, is probably one of the most constructive future-focused professions that you can do. Like it is built, it is literally enabling the future. Yeah. And when that dawned on me, I, I thought, well, this is a project that I want to be part of. And I, I, there's, there's no blame attached to me not doing well, particularly well at school. I, it was just that school didn't quite fit around where my head was at, I think, yeah. at the time. And it was... You know, sometimes boring, sometimes exciting, but you know, I I just wasn't that applied. And then I did the psychology degree, I did a drama degree, um, part of the same thing. And then at the end, I thought, wow, teaching drama seems like that could be an exciting thing to do. So I went and taught drama in high schools for several years. I then came out and worked for the department for a while as a consultant, um, working with other drama teachers, other arts educators. And then I thought, well, this is kind of interesting and I want to do some research in that. So I did some research, um, uh, got a PhD. Um, I'm giving you the truncated version. There's a lot of blood and guts and misery <laughs> in the middle of all this. Um, yeah, and also, also joy. Um, <clears throat> and at the end of all that, I think I thought, okay, I want, I, I want to be part of, you know, I want to be part of doing something different. So... Going into tertiary education uh, meant that I had a platform to continue doing research, but I could teach, which I love. And it, it's it's kind of a job that allows you to do kind of really expansive, exciting, interesting Amazing. things and, and um, stay teaching, stay connected. So, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, was, it was those things. And then I'm sure we'll get on to this, starting uh, 4C Transformative Learning, kind of which happened about uh, 2017 was an opportunity then to try and give back to schools and and close the gap the huge gap i think between research policy and practice yeah, yeah. and actually make that real and so um so that that's kind of a very yeah. truncated version of the fairly boring story of where i've got to but that right. that's really um i think i think the the what you're pointing to is what happened when I was, how do you get from disengaged to engaged? I think you realise the power mm. of what you've got in your hands as a I, teacher, as an educator. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And and it does, like, I was that I was that kid in school. I wasn't particularly good at it, um, but I loved going to school because of the relationships I had with a number of teachers. And um, I do wonder how many kids are sitting in our schools at the moment that feel as though it's not for them. Um, and it really makes me think about that. And my view is that if a child is not engaged or a child doesn't feel like they can learn, that's actually on me as the educator. It's not their fault. It's not, there's no challenges with them. I need to try and find a way. And um, I, I was just wondering, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about um uh, oh, sorry, you just mentioned before the, the four C's for transformation, uh, transformative learning. I was yeah. just wondering, um, I, I mean, I'm not going to rehash your work back to you. So I thought it may be worth just spending a few moments unpacking that. And why did you feel that there was such a need um, to kind of change the way that we were um, designing schools and education systems? Well, <clears throat> so four C's, collaboration. A big, a big question, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, 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 that's okay. Collaboration, communication, creativity, critical reflection. Yes. Uh, are, are the kind of what I see as the DNA of learning. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that you say that you uh, kind of take responsibility for kids learning. I agree with that partially, but I think we also have a systemic problem. Yes, absolutely. Which, 
yeah, that that the things that you were tested on and I was tested on and those disengaged kids were tested on isn't creativity necessarily. Like NAPLAN doesn't have a creativity test, uh, doesn't have a collaboration test, doesn't have a communication test uh, and doesn't have a critical reflection test. Now, you might say, so what? You know, what does it matter? But see, what we know from research, what we know from you know, kind of analysis of the kind of jobs that will be available, what we know from all of the things that we do in education is that there are base kind of dispositions and capacities that we need to understand and engage with to not only survive but thrive mm. in a complex world. So let's take creativity, for instance. Why would creativity matter? Well, in a world where information is accessible to everyone, uh, you need to be able to do something with that information, not just regurgitate it. And yet we've still got a regurgitation kind of practice in education. So why is it that we aren't kind of thinking about creativity being first and foremost forefront of our thinking? It's, uh, it's partly because we never had done that. We, we've It's kind of been in different spaces and and the, the kind of closing that gap is getting and supporting teachers and educators first and leaders to understand why creativity matters, but more importantly, how it can be taught. So there, there's, a, there's a big gap, I think, uh, and we call it the pedagogy policy gap, between the kind of policy that's out there, and creativity is a classic. Creativity has been in all of the documents for about the last 20 years, and yet we don't see it as consistently as we might in classrooms. And I don't blame the teachers. I blame the system for not giving teachers frameworks to understand. Mm -hmm. And that's why we started Force Your Transformative Learning, yeah. to underscore the importance of those base capacities. Because if you don't have those capacities, you can't learn, you can't grow, you can't develop. But also to close that gap between what we know from research and what we know in policy and what actually happens in a classroom on a day-to-day -day basis and in schools. Yeah. And in, in a sense, the if, if on my um on my kind of tombstone someone says, you know, he, he managed to close the gap between that and this, or you know, his team or his collaborations or his partnerships, that I'll kind of have That's rest it. in peace, so to speak. Yeah. Um <clears throat> so so it really is about how you make that connection. And those capacities are absolutely kind of foundational to doing other kind of learning, I think. Yeah, look, I, I think that's, um, uh, Michael, that's so important. And, and from a personal point of view, my little one just started kindy. Um, mm. So like we, and we don't have a, a TV in our house, which is a little bit weird. Um, we just have decided that like it's important for, our kids to be bored and to engage and to create and to play and to justify and to cook and all of these types of things. And we actually did it accidentally because we spent all of our money on our house about 15 years ago and then decided we needed to buy a couch and then a bed and then a fridge. And then some way down the track, we realized we didn't have a TV, but long story short, it worked, it worked really well. And one of the things that I've noticed, like I spent a lot of my career in kindergarten classrooms is that children are naturally collaborative uh that they critically reflect they communicate they are creative and it seems to be as we move and, and please correct me if i'm wrong but as we move further and further through the educational system that these things are lost um and it's it's really quite it's really quite scary to see um i think and w would you agree with that do you think that our system in some way sort of educates people out of that and do we need to teach students these skills or do they need to rediscover the skills that they've already had always had so i think we're born with what i call inherencies and yeah. the inherency of creativity for instance uh, yeah. and what you, you see in your classroom uh is absolutely the kind of uh, the kind of state that we should be encouraging uh, if you think about play, for instance, and uh, the way we play, all the all of the neuroscience is, is pointing to how important that is now. And yet, uh, you know, it's seen as trivial or non-serious. And when when we get older, we talk about putting play away, not being involved in play. And 
you know, you, you, you would get laughed out of a staff room if you talked about year 12 science playing probably, you know, and we've got to be involved in playing year 12 science, less so pro- probably in early childhood, but still. And, and so what I think happens is that we start to say, okay, how can we how can we make this rigorous? How can we make it difficult? And things like creativity and play are seen to be a bit trivial and non-serious or nice to have, when in fact we've got it wrong, I think, that these things are absolutely central to the way we grow, understand and develop as people. Mm. And so, you know, uh, encouraging play, supporting play, encouraging creativity, supporting creativity actually helps us uh, deal with all of the things that we have to in life. And um, really so to, to your point, I, I think there is a systematic uh, de- kind of removal of that uh, in, with the aim of kind of making education more rigorous. But there is something incredibly rigorous about creativity. Mm. I mean, uh, Dyson, who made the vacuum cleaners, oh. uh, who, who I think is one of the most creative people around. Absolutely. Uh, how non-rigorous it was doing, you know, something like a thousand iterations of his vacuum cleaner before he got it right. Because that creativity is actually hard work. And and I think people have thought of it as kind of fluffing about on a cloud and, you know, cloudy kind of nonsense. Yeah, but actually it's hard, difficult, kind of painstaking work. Yeah. And anyone involved in creative process, anyone who's written a novel or a play or uh, done some work in science will tell you how difficult it is. And I think we, we've misunderstood that in the education system. Mm, I think so. And we are, I'm just looking around at all of the Dyson products in our apartment and uh, we have spent way too much money uh, on products. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, he would be a dream guest, Mr. James Dyson. I think that would be wonderful just to talk to him. And I think about the, going back to what you're saying about sort of the rigour of creativity and, and um, uh, collaboration and kind of putting yourself out there. Is that what you think sort of initially drew you to, to drama education? Yeah. I think what initially drew me to it was the idea of being able to work with um, adolescents, in my case, on a day-to-day basis, just creating things, like mm. creating mm. things, I think, making ideas three-dimensional. Great. Um, and the, the idea that you could be uh, working in the body um, uh, all the time is, is also so exciting. And, um, and so so critical to the way learning works and so being able to do that was absolutely a privilege uh but it kind of fuses all the thing I, things i love it fuses creativity it fuses embodiment and it fuses kind of learning all in the one experience and and i think it's been really influential in the kinds of things that we talk to schools about today yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's almost, um, uh, Michael, there's almost a whole podcast episode in itself, I think, on each of those four um, elements. There's a lot in there. Um, I did just want to touch on as well, uh, in your book, Transforming Education, uh, you talked about um, the infinite game in education. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering, um, would you mind spending a few moments unpacking what that term means? Um, I was reading a book the other day and the, and the concept came up and I thought it was really interesting that that you think it could be applicable to education but what did you mean by that and what is an infinite game in terms of uh, education so the the idea came up uh from a guy called james p cars uh who was a kind of a theological religious studies guy um ages ago but it's been kind of popularized by simon sinek who's kind of a Mm -hmm. business guru type recently uh, and I thought it was a really good way to explain how we do things uh, kind of the wrong way around in education. And I'll explain what I mean. So we know what a finite game is. We know that it's uh, so finite games are things like cricket or yep. basketball. You yep. know, there's there's rules. There's a win loss state. You know, everybody knows who's what the rules are, who wins, who loses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so. That's known. But the infinite games are games that uh, the win-loss state doesn't isn't actually that helpful. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, international diplomacy. You don't actually want to go to war. So, so the winners and losers aren't helpful in that context. You want to keep everyone engaged all at the same time, doing as well as they can. The health system is like that. You yeah. want to make sure, you know, and universal health care uh, in Australia and in the UK and other places are, are meant to create an infinite game mm. so that everybody has access to health care when they need it. You know, it's not perfect, but I've just been to the US and it's better than the US, I've got to tell you. It, it seems so, like, um, uh, sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to cut you off. There's a bit yeah. of a debate, but it seems like it's this constant process of refinement. Like you never actually get to the end goal, but it's a process Absolutely. of iteration. And, and yeah, sorry, please continue. So, and then education is an infinite game. Like the, the kid, we don't just want to be looking after the kids that are doing really well. We want to be looking after the kids, and Australia's got a particular problem in this area, that are kind of disadvantaged for a bunch of reasons, and we want to keep them in the game. We want them to continue thinking school is for them. We want them to be engaged and excited by school. And so, you know, and the problem is that sometimes we confuse the finite games for the infinite games. So. We confuse NAPLAN, which is a finite game, and the HSC, which is a finite game, for the infinite game, which is about learning. And, you know, I, I, I explained this once to a principal. I was doing a talk um, and, and the principal came up to me later and I said, oh, he said, oh, I'm really struck by the infinite and finite game idea. I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And he said, <clears throat> he said, but, of course, we can't do learning at this school, like just for a moment kind of let that sink in we can't do <laughs> at this school like in terms of a non sequitur i think that wins the prize but anyway uh we can't do learning at this school because we have to compete with the schools around us for rankings now <clears throat> i'm not blaming the principal for that but what we've managed to create is something in that context where the finite game matters so much more than the infinite game yeah that's right and when someone who is senior in education can say, we don't have time for learning, I think the whole system needs to be looked at. Yeah. So, yeah, couldn't agree more. So, how do we get back from there? Well, I think we get back from there by saying, how do we value learning in a classroom? How do we make those finite games serve the infinite game? And I'm not calling for the end of NAPLAN or the end of the HSC necessarily, although that might be a bad idea or changing them might be a bad idea. But what I am saying is they need to serve, those finite games need to serve the infinite game. They need to serve learning and each child's opportunity yeah. to learn, yeah. not the other way around. So yeah. that's what, what that I, I think that's really important. And and part of the, the, the joys I've had with this podcast is speaking to people from a variety of um sectors really and i really believe that it's when we come together we can help solve some of these bigger problems and i was speaking to a a wonderful lady called um mary featherstone who's a um a designer i was speaking to the other day um and she was kind of talking about the um the importance of um designing for the client and we don't really talk about that much in schools. And obviously we, we sort of forget that the client is the student that's sitting in front of us and actually starting with what do these students need as opposed to trying to plug them into a set of expectations or outcomes or a system. And I, I just thought that was really interesting because she said in every other instance, we ask the every other um, uh, design process, we ask the client what they need or what they want. But for some reason in schools, we we tend not to do that. And look, that's just a thought, um, but I think a bit of an aside, but it really made me think about, we. I think we sort of have this around the wrong way sometimes. We, we're trying to fit our kids into a system as opposed to making sure that the system is serving the needs um, of our young people. But there wasn't really a question in that, more of a statement, but I, it just really made me stop and think and go, yeah, I think we've maybe got something wrong there. And um, uh, Michael, would you mind maybe talking about assessment? I know it's a huge topic. And as I said, we probably need a whole other podcast series in itself on assessment. But how do we um, begin to, quote unquote, assess these skills? And is assessment or assessing even the right word? I mean, how do we understand or build capacity around creativity and collaboration? Would you mind yeah, maybe unpacking that a little bit? So... The first principles with assessment is it has to support learning. Now, of course, 
that sounds like a no-brainer, right? Um, and it yet, sounds very obvious, but yet we get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and yet you know we use NAPLAN scores and my schools to rank against schools against each other, and you know league tables, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's the there's our first problem. The second problem is there's a mythology around things like creativity that you can't assess creativity because it's individual and, you know, nobody um, can be objective enough to assess in that way. It's nonsense. Music education, drama education, visual arts education has been assessing, at least in part, creativity for decades, Mm. maybe 30, 40 years. Um, Certainly uh, that's been the case uh, in the arts and probably in other areas as well. So there's a nonsense there and it's propagated, I think, because people don't want to think about it. <clears throat> but if you can come up with a rubric, you can assess something. So, yeah, you know, right. if you can come up with a, a an agreed rubric for creativity and we've got a rubric called the Creativity Cascade, mm-hmm. uh, Transforming Schools and Transforming Education, we discuss it, you can base, you know, you can assess based on that. Yeah, the other thing is, I think we've thought of assessment in a really narrow way. Like we've thought about it as a pen and paper experience when, in fact, it's why can't you assess someone uh, doing an embodied process? Like you can. I, I, I did it doing drama examination for, you know, 15 years. It's, it's completely possible. It's doable and there's process and research around it. It's completely possible and yet, we still restrict ourselves to kind of, for the most part, pen and paper tests. So that to, to my way of thinking, uh, we need to kind of get the first principles right and then we need to be thinking more broadly uh, and expansively about what we assess and then how we assess it. And if we, we think more broadly about that, it's going to mean that the kids that are disengaged because they don't do well on the things that we assess at the moment have a much broader yeah. way of thinking about themselves as students. So, you know, they might be amazing collaborators but not great writers, but at yeah. the moment there's no test for collaboration really and yeah. so nobody will ever know that and yet employers want that. So, yeah, that's it's so true and it's really scary, isn't it, that the the way that we've kind of ranked hierarchically different subjects, I mean, we've got sort of our English and our maths at the top and respectfully we've got quite often the art subjects right down at the bottom and I, I love what you're saying and what you talk about in your work about how these things actually need to be central in our curriculum not yeah would you mind do you think that's the case do you think we've kind of like I said ranked key learning areas of in importance because it seems yeah. that way. I mean and like literacy and numeracy are right up there and they should be like you know we don't we want a literate community we want kids who can you know speak and write absolutely there's no argument about that but i think when you rank subjects what you what you are in danger of doing and i think there is definitely a hierarchy i mean we see this in terms of just the hours that are allocated to the arts the way the arts are uh, dealt with <clears throat> and um what you what you do if you do put them at the bottom of a ranking is you miss out on the opportunity that those subjects afford. So, for instance, drama education, which has been my research and my teaching my whole career, it, it is that idea of how you make things uh, that are in one dimensions on a page into three dimensions or even not even one-dimensional things, things that are going on, in ideas that are in your head, how you make them real in the world. And how you make something real in the world matters when we have to make lots of things real in the world. We have to make responses to climate change real. We have to make responses to things like, you know, domestic violence and family violence real in the world. We have to um, deal with systematic poverty and um, the housing crisis. We have to make creative things in the world and it's not going to be us that needs to deal with us necessarily although we will a little it's going to be the kids in our classrooms at the moment so are we disinheriting through this process great question it's ranking that we endlessly do uh these kids of all these opportunities that are actually going to be instrumentally critical to the way they thrive later on in life yeah there's uh... Like I said before, there's so much in that, and and um, 
I think the whole purpose of these discussions that I'm having with people like yourself is to get people to start to think and start to question things that they have, I guess, assumed as gospel for so many years. And I love that. Um, I love that while reading through your work, I respectfully, I feel a bit uncomfortable as well, because it makes me challenges some of the things that I have kind of held dear for a really long time. And I love that. I love being, in, and that goes back, I think really well to that beautiful sense of, of taking, uh, of you feeling like you were taking risks in the classroom and actually being a little bit on the edge of your seat. I think it's really lovely. And um, it would be amiss of me. Um, and I'd love you to spend a few moments, Michael, um, unpacking what the Create Centre is and also yep. what you hope to do with that. I mean, my understanding is you're working with Professor Robin uh, Ewing. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about the main sort of objectives behind that and, and what are some of the successes that you've both seen so far? So the CREATE Centre is a centre at, uh, at the University of Sydney which focuses on research uh, and professional learning for teachers. And it arose because there's a lot of uh, rhetoric out there about how important creativity is, and yet there isn't much that actually connects creative work to academic work to schools. And there's also not much that uh, links creativity and professional learning together. Yes. And so uh, the co-director, Professor Robin Ewing, and I kind of started uh, this centre with the idea that we would be uh, kind of applying the research and supporting the translation of the research in schools right. around creativity. Uh, and so there's there's a couple of successes, I think, that I'd want to highlight, especially for uh, your audience who are mainly involved in schools. So things like we've got uh, webinars, we've got like, you know, I think 90 webinars dealing with different aspects of creativity. And you can go back through the catalogue. Any teacher can join it for free, by the way. Yeah. And we've got kind of 2,500 members. Uh, you just need to Google Create University of Sydney uh, and you can you can join um, <clears throat> and then just keep apprised of all that information. We've all also started programs like ArtsRich uh, EALD. So ArtsRich EALD is focused on providing uh, young people in schools with, with arts-based support uh, in English as an additional language or mm -hmm. dialect. So, you know, that uh, some of the schools we work with have 80% kids yeah. who are second language learners in terms of English. So, And we know from the research that the arts is really powerful Absolutely. in language learning. So it's it's actually moving that research into practice and then doing it in schools. So we're in now four schools doing that work. Um, we hope to make that bigger and schools are welcome to contact us if they'd like to be involved. Um, but certainly we, we're interested in making that uh, a reality for schools. And those are the kinds of things that we do, yeah. as well as a bunch of research around Love the that. place of play in early childhood um, and, you know, the, the impact of theatre and other arts forms in uh, the lives of young people and older people. So it's that kind of work that we do. It's 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 so important, and I think we, I mentioned before I we hit record is my background was as an EALD teacher, and I worked in Fairfield, Villawood, um, in a lot of very wonderful and very multicultural areas, and we used a lot of art um, and art therapy and drama and dance to to not only sort of celebrate students' culture and validate kind of where they're from and who they were, but it was also really great um, as a sort of a, to help students move through some of the challenges that they'd faced. And I think I, I, it was the first time I really noticed the the importance of um, sort of art and art therapy and dance and drama within that context. And I think it's wonderful that you um, are doing something specifically for learners where English is a second language. It's, uh, it's really lovely. And I noticed that um, through art and through dance and drama, students were able to express themselves in ways that linguistically they couldn't um, have done before. Um, and so it sort of removes that barrier. It was, it was lovely. And one of my proudest moments was seeing, I think we had about 98% non-English speaking background students. One of my uh, proudest moments was a multicultural day, seeing our students up there with all of their flags and doing all the different dances and drama and reciting poetry from their country. It was, um, yeah, really beautiful. So yeah, I, I really applaud you for um, focusing on uh, ELD learners as well. Um, yeah, hugely important. Um, uh, 
Michael, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so just a couple more questions, um, if you don't mind. Um, if you were um, building an education system from the ground up, this is a very big, broad philosophical question. Um, what would be some of its essential uh, attributes? So if I was building it from the ground up, I think uh, there's some attributes in the current system I'd want to retain. So the the commitment and the excellence of our teaching, of our yep. teachers, I'd want Absolutely. to retain. Uh, the, our committed leaders, I'd want to retain and support. But I suppose if we're thinking about the content of the curriculum, uh, I'd obviously, and I would say this, wouldn't I, uh, go to the four C's as the foundational kind of bedrock. And it's this isn't pie in the sky. Wales is doing this. Absolutely. Scotland, to an extent is doing it as well. It's happening. Um, and there's a great podcast on the Welsh education system on, on the Create website that people might be interested in. <clears throat> so it, it's those kinds of things. It would be an embodied and acted kind of experience because we know from the research that that makes a difference. Uh, it, you know, it, it would be a, it would, would have rigour, but it wouldn't uh, be a place where, uh, kind of issues like mental wellness were pushed to the side. I think, you know, we've got all these silos in education at the moment where we think, okay, that's curriculum, that's kind of pastoral care or mental wellness or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got a thing in our book um, called The Learning Disposition Wheel, which, which focuses on uh, all of the learning that goes on, um, all of the capacity, sorry, the, the disposition yeah. for learning. And it breaks down into nine areas. And then people say, oh, okay, so they're the dispositions for learning. What's what's the student welfare side of this? And we say, well, actually, this is a, a, a learning disposition world, but it's also a welfare disposition world. If you are doing the curriculum right, you don't need to silo these things off because actually collaboration, communication, the, aff the affective are, are absolutely critical in things like critical reflection in things like um, communication. So they're all embedded. I'm not saying um, teachers are doing a bad job. I just think we've we've, we've siloed these things to to, a, to detriment. Yeah. The other thing I rethink, I think, is high school. You know, a, a, lot, a lot of the time kids have these great interdisciplinary experiences in primary school where they've got connections between subjects, et cetera, et cetera. They turn up to a school in year seven and they get seven different pipes. You've got your maths pipe, you've got your English pipe, you've got your history pipe, um, and none of those pipes connect. Like you've got 50 minutes of science, 50 minutes of drama sometimes, if you're lucky, 50 minutes of uh, music, uh, and then how do these things connect? So there, there's not a sense that I think in many schools, some schools are different, that, that these connections matter. And of course they matter. Of course they do. Uh, yeah, if we could, if we are going to solve the big problems, like climate change isn't a science problem, it's not an English problem, it's not a maths problem, it's not a drama problem, it's all of these things. And so we do our students a disservice, I think, to, to separate knowledge into silos in the way that we do. It's not how it works in the real world, it should, shouldn't be how it works in schools. Yeah, I, I I love Michael that you um that you mentioned the hard work of our amazing teachers and school leaders because I know that there are so many people that are in in classrooms and also people that will listen to our conversation and they genuinely want the best for their students and I love that you like I said you champion the amazing work that um, that us educators do because it's the best job in the world but it's probably the hardest. <laughs> because it's really hard to try and get it all right. Um, just wondering um, uh, as well, Michael, um, if I was sitting down with you, I've just graduated university, uh, just did my undergraduate, and I'm about to step into a classroom for the first time. Um, do you have any uh, advice that you'd like to give me about how to love my job in 10, 20, 30 years time? Yeah, I think uh, this is a, a discussion we have with our students just as they're about to go out. So it's, right. it's pressing. Uh, <clears throat> what we say is there'll be good times and there'll be hard times, but just remember that you've entered a profession which is the mother of all other professions, that you have 
you are doing something which is inherently creative. And when you are tempted to go back to the finite game and play it by the numbers, just remember the things that you that brought you into education and the things that you love. And if you remember the things you love, which is, you know, relationships, uh, providing students with agency, having agency yourself, you, you, can, you can have the most wonderful career that will change many lives, including your own, if you stay open to learning, I mean, which is core, really. How do you, as a teacher, stay open to learning? Like we think that often, you know, you finish university and that you're done with the learning, but the learning can never stop or you become atrophied. Uh, so keep learning, keep growing, keep engaging, and when the hard times come, seek help, seek support, because they will. I love they that. They do all of us. So, so but... But inherently, you've joined the most creative job in the world, a creative profession in the world, and you need to lay hold on that and use that and make that proactive in the, your life and the life of your students. Fantastic. Um, Professor Michael Anderson, thank you um, for talking to me today. It's been a, a, um, a wonderful privilege. Uh, your work, um, like I said, has inspired me for for many years and also made me, as I said, respectfully feel a little bit uncomfortable and to ask some questions that I, um, that are essential, but are a bit scary to ask about education. So I am uh, incredibly honored that you would chat to me today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Not at all, complete pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.